and welcome to the Weekly Skeptic episode 57. I'm Nick Dixon here with the 44th most powerful person on the New Statesman's right power list. It's Toby Young. And coming up, the mainstream media attempt to shut down GB News. Nigel Farage dominates the Tory party conference and has multiculturalism failed. And do we even know what it is? Plus loads more. And of course, peak woke. But Toby, there's so much happening in your life. You're in all sorts of lists and you've hurt your hand, which we don't really have to explain because it's not a video podcast, but but you wanted to talk about it anyway because you've got a weird thing on your wrist. Do you want to quickly explain what happened? Yes. Yeah, so um, uh, in the middle of the night on Thursday, uh, or rather in the small hours of Friday morning, um, I discovered that my right hand or the fingers on my right hand weren't working properly. Um, so I went to A&E the following day. How did you discover that? Doesn't well, matter. <laughs> I, I was un- unable. <laughs> I was unable to take my trousers off. Um, right. Uh, and then in the morning, I couldn't. That's get what I thought. <laughs> That's yeah. what I thought it was going to be. <laughs> um, anyway, so I went to A and E. I was in Yorkshire, so I went to James Cook Hospital in Middlesbrough. Uh, waited six hours, and I was terrified. I'd had some kind of stroke, and um, and I think that was what the doctor thought initially too. Which begs the question: Why? You know, I was triaged the nurse told the staff what they thought was wrong with me, which was I'd had a stroke. And then I had to wait six hours before I was seen by a doctor. And you'd think, well, if I'd had a stroke, mightn't they have speeded it up a little bit? Anyway, um, turned out I hadn't had a stroke. Um, After kind of, you know, prodding and poking me for a while, the doctor concluded that actually there didn't seem to be any loss of sensation on the right-hand side of my body. It was just my right hand, very localized. And turns out it's something called um, radial nerve injury colloquially known as Saturday night palsy um, uh, because it's often something that happens to people after a drunken Saturday night. They fall asleep, inebriated, sleep in an awkward position, trap a nerve, wake up the following morning, the hand doesn't work properly. And that's, I think, basically what happened to me. Um, and um, uh, and I, I went and saw an orthopedic surgeon earlier today and he confirmed the diagnosis and I was x-rayed um, and so forth and nothing seriously wrong. It does look like just Saturday night palsy, but it, it, it takes about six to eight weeks to recover. It, what it means is that I can't type. I can't touch type. I have to type using the kind of hunt and hit method with my left hand. So an email that would typically take 10 seconds takes 10 minutes. And given that I write 10,000 words a day, give or take, that's incredibly debilitating. So I'm having to kind of figure out text to type software and find the best one. Uh, but it, yeah, it's, it's a pain in the ass, but it's nothing too serious. Saturday Night Palsy, by the way, the less successful sequel to Saturday Night Fever. Um, <laughs> straight to video, that one. <laughs> Saturday Night Palsy starring Toby Young. Very different film. Uh, I love yeah. the fact they just immediately assumed it was a stroke. And it wasn't from looking at your symptoms. They just It's Toby Young. I've seen how much he works. He seems pretty stressed. He got cancelled five times. Let's, uh, it must be a stroke. I thought yeah. I was having a stroke recently because my left eye was flickering for two weeks. Started after I was speaking to Constantine at a party. Don't know why. Then, it, then I thought. Then it stopped suddenly. I was like, "Oh, brilliant! It stopped." Then it moved to my left cheek, and then I thought, "Is this getting more and more severe as it moves down the left side of my body until it gets to my heart?" But I think it's just stress. It has been a bit of a stressful time, Toby, for all of us. And I wonder if I should. That would bring us to our first story, which is uh, unless you have anything more to say on your palsy. No, I've got, I've got no, no, nothing more on my Saturday night palsy. Okay. Well, then maybe we'll get to our first story, which is, of course, GB News. It almost has to be. But it's basically a minefield for us. And people will be screaming at the wireless saying, why don't they address it properly? But I think it's basically impossible as an employee to fully address it. And 
people should realize that the media is attempting to cancel me off the back of it, which I don't want to give too much oxygen to, but there was a half-hearted attempt by some minor papers to to bring me into it. So some people posting at me, why are you not doing this and that in it? Why are you not shouting at the bosses and, sack, you know, why don't, why don't you just jump off a cliff? It is basically what people like to post at me on X. It's like I've already defended. If you look at my X posts, I hate that we have to call them that, you'll see I've been pretty clear on what I've said. I've said it in a clever way, but you'll see what I'm trying to do is actually defend colleagues and the channel, which I believe can be done. I don't think you have to throw one or the other under the bus. That's my take because we have threats from everywhere. And um, one thing we can talk about, though, I think is the the attack on GB News as a whole, quite shameful. I mean, the Newsnight attack, now I do know someone who works on that program and I almost sent it to him and said, mate, I almost said a city can't mate because it was it was Adam Bolton, uh, Caroline Noakes, an alleged conservative, and another guy, was it Yelland? And they were all having a pop at GB News and at least two of them said it should be shut down. And Bolton's been going around on a whole tour of, Murdoch-owned channels like Talk TV saying it should be shut down. And I just said it was like asking Coke if they think Pepsi should be shut down. It was absolutely absurd. I mean, perhaps not a perfect analogy in terms of the size of the companies, but you can't ask your competitors, someone like Bolton, who's worked for Sky for years, and so if you know if you should shut down GB News, of course they think that. And I also think, Toby, that... Oh, and by the way, Caroline notes a funny thing where she said, and I don't go on there, she's been on... Nine times, she'd been on like <laughs> nine days ago. It, it, the really generous interpretation of that is that she was saying she hadn't literally been on Dan's show or Lawrence's show. But then I saw her say something else that contradicted that as well. I think she was trying to say she'd only been on the news part of it or something. It mm. was a really strange claim when you have been on the channel loads. It was truly bizarre. Um, and lastly, I might just add on that, that they clear, that, that revealed, that and other things revealed that they don't actually care about the alleged impropriety or you know the or the comments they care about shutting gb news down you had people like the woman from lbc sangeeta saying there's no need to report gb news to ofcom it's imploding there's a gloating about this alleged demise of gb news but if they really cared about the comments and the offense to the 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 woman involved they would be like oh gb news is handling this that's great they're mature they're dealing with it and they're protecting that poor woman that would be but they don't. They just say, GB News is going to be cancelled. You know, that shows how disingenuous they are. Discuss. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you do feel GB News can't win because had they not suspended Lawrence and Dan, um, then they would have been vilified for failing to suspend them. Um, and people would have tagged in Ofcom in their condemnation of GB News for, for not doing that. But having done that, they get absolutely zero credit. It just fuels the story that GB News is in chaos, and that's another reason to shut it down. Um, uh, but uh, yeah, as you say, I mean, surely that's an example of um, GB News behaving as you know its critics would like it to behave. It's not evidence that it's a kind of um, news channel that kind of traffics in hate. Um, uh, one phrase um, Adam Bolton used, which was very telling, is that GB News was disrupting the uh, delicate ecology of British broadcasting, which is like, that was exactly why it was set up, mate. Um, <laughs> it was like, what a stupid thing to say. Uh, you know, uh, by, by delicate ecology, presumably he means cosy consensus. Monopoly. Um, 
Monopoly, yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. It's just, yeah, ridiculous. Um, uh, but yeah, I mean, it shows that GB News is over the target, doesn't it? And is, um, is, is, is giving more mainstream news channels a run for its money, run for their money. Um, uh, you know, if Talk TV was a bit more successful, no doubt that would be in people's crosshairs too, but you know, it isn't. So it isn't. Um, yeah, I don't think GB News has too much to worry about from, this particular episode and i don't know if you've been if you've seen all the love gb news has been getting at the tory party conference you know you just have to you know say the words and the the, the grassroots burst into spontaneous applause yeah. um so uh I, I i don't think i don't think it um i don't think gb news has too much to worry about on the contrary you know i'd be feeling reasonably pleased if i was a shareholder in gb news that it's getting such an enormous amount of attention um, and is considered, you know, a big enough player now to be worthy of, you know, sustained attacks um, on programmes like Newsnight and on LBC. Well, it did beat Sky and BBC for a a day, didn't it? it? It is doing well in the ratings. I do question the idea that no publicity is bad publicity in this day and age. I think that's a pre cancel culture idea. On your point about talk TV, um, it might not just be that it's not big enough. It might be that also it's kind of establishment. You know, Murdoch, we have, I have a story somewhere here about Murdoch potentially switching to Starmer if he's definitely going to win, much like they did with the the mm-hmm. Sun backs Blair and it was a Sun what won it with Major in 92. That was more of a boast after the election, but they, they have been known to just be glory hunters and switch around like that. I look at talk, I look at some of the stuff Piers does, I look at, you know what Murdoch's doing now. I, I think talk are basically gone establishment, and I think GB are the the real threat. And by the way, just a quick thing for the listeners as well: they have started going through this podcast, some of the mainstream media for for dirt. So that's why we have to be very careful in this GB story because they'll just go through anything and they'll take anything you say out of context. So, I, but I think we've been pretty fair. But yeah, the future of GB is a, is a big question. I mean, you know, some people will say, "Oh, this." They're going to go to mainstream because of this. How do you see that playing out, Toby? Yeah, well, I suppose, yeah, it does feel as though GB News has reached a fork in the road and needs to decide um, just how alt or mainstream it's going to be. Um, and you get the impression, particularly given that Paul Marshall, one of the major shareholders, is also a bidder for the Telegraph Group, that it's going to choose the more mainstream path rather than the more alt path. But the obvious solution, um, particularly if it wants to remain in Ofcom's good graces, which it needs to do because Ofcom can shut it down, um, the obvious solution is to create a kind of internet spin-off, which would be kind of, you know, GB News uncensored. Um, They wouldn't be able to do it on YouTube because YouTube is now regulated by Ofcom. Um, But I think they would be able to do it on Rumble. Um, We saw recently when um, Caroline Diniage, who we discussed last week, urged Rumble to demonetize Russell Brand, the CEO of Rumble, wrote a very robust response uh, defending Rumble's independence and saying it didn't need to do the bidding of an uppity backbench MP, um, quite right, um, and I think that um, I think that Rumble would be outside the jurisdiction of Ofcom, so it could have the kind of Ofcom regulated, more mainstream broadcast news channel, and um, uh, 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 
an internet spin-off, which would be GB News Uncensored and Lawrence and Dan and Darren Grimes and Galvin Robinson could thrive on the kind of uncensored channel. But I, I guess it begs the question, which bit would you end up on, Nick? It does. You've also, um, Darren will be gutted you just throwing him off because he's still on the channel. <laughs> you just listed him with three suspended people. But um, poor old Darren. I mean, yeah, it does beg that question. I, I, I'm the sensible face of GB Toby, but the intellectual side, the sort of cultural conservative intellectual side that so many, that many people think it should be. And, you know, that's what lots of people have been on X have been calling for it to be. So I'm very much the highbrow side. Me and Simon Evans discussing obscure literature at 11 p.m. with a, a pipe and a, a whiskey. That's the, that's where I that's what that's what I am. But you know, you do raise an interesting point. I did see this thing in the Telegraph, which is oh, by the way, the streaming. Just quickly, I have heard that that may happen. That's not inside information from GB. I'm giving away. I read it somewhere. I can't remember where that they were considering doing that. I don't know if that's true or not. They were considering doing a streaming branch. So I don't know if that's true, but. This in the Telegraph was interesting about the advertising boycott, which remains incredibly unjust. But they said, as a result, the channel is faced with the near impossible task of presenting itself to viewers as an antidote to the groupthink of the mainstream media, while simultaneously reassuring Adland that it is a conventional outlet no different from traditional rivals. I think that is the, that is the tricky thing. How do you mm. do that? If advertisers mm. weren't woke, I think that would be perfectly doable. You say... We're a different voice. We give the country's voice. We give a centre-right opinion. Mm-hmm. We represent people who are concerned about immigration and net zero and all these mm-hmm. things, which, which are our majority opinions. And then and that would be perfectly fine. So actually, it shouldn't be such a, a, a sort of conflict in a normal world. But we're not in that world. We're in a world where advertisers mm-hmm. are inherently woke. Companies are, are, are spooked very easily. So that is an almost impossible balancing act. What do you think to that? Yeah, well, it's the we discussed before. Um, the way forward for channels that want to be intellectually independent broadcasters, websites, is to build up a subscriber base. That was, you know, one stage seemingly Elon Musk's solution to the advertising boycott. But I think it is very difficult to, you know, if you are a big broadcaster like GB News to pay all your bills just from subscription revenue. I mean, if they stuck it behind a paywall, um, it would probably lose a lot of its viewers. Um, It would cease to be a kind of voice in the national conversation in the way it is now. Um, But, you know, maybe the solution is to start this streaming version, and that could be behind a paywall. You have to subscribe to get it um, and have an advertiser-funded, more mainstream version, which doesn't have some of the problems that prevent it from getting advertising now. But wouldn't the ad, ad companies just still steer clear because it had that other wing? I mean, that seems very likely. Maybe, but maybe not. It's it's tricky. I mean, people should really be directing their ire at perhaps at Ofcom and, and at, definitely at ad companies and definitely at the activists that pressure these companies, like Stop Funding Hate and these kind of people. That's what I think. Um, it's a yeah, very there, tricky situation. Go on. There, there was one... Um, one um, example of um, how channels, how media organizations should respond when they're threatened with an advertising boycott unless they no platform someone. The Spectator had convened a panel at the Conservative Party conference and they had a sponsor, I think a, a medical sponsor. And one of the people on the panel was Carol Sakura, um, the consultant oncologist who's been very critical of the government's pandemic response. Um, and uh, the sponsor said, unless 
you kick him off the panel, we're going to withdraw our sponsorship. And Andrew Neil said, in that case, take a hike. We're not going to do your bidding. Um, go and sponsor someone else. Far from you forcing us to cancel Carol Sakura, we're cancelling you. That is the correct response. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I just want to do one quick update on, on the Caroline Noakes aspect. I found what she said. She said, I've never hosted a show on GB News. I've never been interviewed by a fellow MP hosting a show on GB News. I've only ever appeared as an interviewee or a panelist on any television program. So, well, you've never hosted a show. That may be a talent issue more than <laughs> more than an integrity issue. Yeah, she I mean, like she's 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 on principle turned down that. Yeah, offer. multiple yeah. shows. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know it's kind of an insult to me. It's like I've hosted headlines. It's like you actually have to earn that, and you know, you know, it's taken things like eleven years in comedy and you know entertainment. It's like. People have to earn those jobs and be quite good at it. You, you know, I've never hosted it. Like, yeah, okay, okay, Caroline. And then, <laughs> you know, she had a get out. The only possible get out I saw was that she specifically meant Lawrence and Dan rather than, but she used a completely right. different get out, which makes no sense. I mean, you've never been interviewed by an MP. Just thought, what? what? I don't do any of their shows is what she said on GB, on Newsnight. And so, yeah, bizarre. Mm-hmm. Um, but speaking of the reception at the conference, do you want to move on and do the Tory party conference? I think we've yeah. probably done a lot, a lot on GB there. People will be unhappy about it in various ways. But um, let's look at the Tory party conversation because it's all kicking off. And probably the most exciting thing happening is, is the reception of Farage there, actually. So we're not totally getting away from GB. And that is one thing that GB can do really well in future. I think they've got Christopher Hope in there at the conference talking to people like Farage. And it is very professional. And they are doing a good job there. And Farage is there in his capacity as a journalist. And he says it's the first time he's been let into the conference since the 80s. <laughs> Uh, but he's just receiving, from everything I hear, this incredible reception. It, people, you know, it, it's just rock star reception at, at the conference. It's sounding mm. like a kind of mid-90s blare, you know, in the run-up to 97. You know, mm. there's a, like a massive cheer. I'd be like, who's this? Is it Sunak? No, it's Farage. So he's completely dominating the conference. Mm. He's not even a part of the party. And it, you do wonder what's going to happen. So they've been asking people, should Farage be part of the Tories again? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Michael Fabricant said they should beg him to be. Sir John Redwood was careful and said, well, I don't do hypotheticals, but I'll answer when it when it's a serious thing. Certainly not mm-hmm. saying no. Rishi Sunak, asked by Christopher Hope, said, well, Conservatives are a broad church. He didn't say no. So, you mm-hmm. know, it, it, it was a bland answer, but it wasn't a no. And obviously, and Priti Patel did a speech just bigging up Farage. So... What do you think, Toby? Is it is it a case of Farage joining the Tories and potentially one day even being leader? I actually think that's what's going to happen, I'll be honest with you. Or is it maybe slightly different if the Tories get hammered in the next election, a kind of a new party emerges from the right of the Tories combined with reform and, and, and some new party? What do you think? Mm. Well, I would have, you know, from the Conservative Party's perspective, if they lose the next general election... Starmer does a deal with the Lib Dems. Proportional representation is brought in by an act of parliament. No messing about with a referendum this time. Lib Dems made that mistake last time. And we then have PR. A new party in that scenario, led by Nigel Farage, could do a lot of damage to the Conservative Party. So if that's going to happen, uh, bringing Nigel Farage back into the fold would be very very sensible. Um, and I can see it happening um, if, say, the Tories lose the next election, Sorella Braverman 
becomes the leader of the party. I mean, it would be quite a kind of symbolic moment. Uh, I can see her readmitting him. Ultimately, I imagine it's the decision of the leader. I can't see Rishi um, readmitting him before then, but then I'm not sure Nigel would apply to become a member of the Rishi-led Conservative Party. I think he'll um, sit out the next general election, um, wait and see what happens, and then decide what his next move is going to be. But yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, there's all this speculation at the Tory party conference about who the next leader is going to be, um, who are the contestants in the forthcoming contest. Uh, but until this week, no one had suggested that Farage's would be one of the um, names um, in in the fray, one of the runners and riders uh, frame rather. Um, so yeah, um, uh, it is interesting. He's getting such a such a warm reception. Um, it might partly be because a lot of the attendees, the delegates, are avid fans of his show on GB News. Yeah, it could be that. It, it's. I mean, I've heard this thing. This came, well, this came from Herd Immunity News on X. I don't really know who they are, but they said from Tory insiders, Farage has the backing of senior leadership. Trust Mark Davis Patel. Fox, Duncan Smith, Sir John Redwood, and several major donors. I mean, we don't know how true that is. Um, it, it, yeah, but, it, but could he come back into the actual party? Is it just because of his GB News show? I don't think Fiti Patel would have had to do that speech specifically naming him. I mean, I think I think he is going to be let into the party. And and this is the scenario where it's basically not a Rishi party because Rishi gets hammered. I mean, your, your scenario with proportional representation, I'm not sure about because I think if Starmer wins... A landslide, he doesn't bother with that, but I, I could be completely wrong. You know more about these well, things yeah, than me. No, uh, this, this would be if he doesn't win a landslide. Oh, sorry. Okay. Yeah, and if, and if Rishi does do better, there's a slight danger from, for if you want this radical new move, it, there's a slight danger that Rishi does recover it with these kind of policies he's doing that are not completely crap and that Labour, you know, keep going on about Black History Month or some nonsense, they, you know, whatever it is that women have penises. Then you, you go okay, Rishi could actually do better and we don't actually get this implosion that we need for this new thing to happen. But I think something new could definitely happen. You've got Lord Crudders saying they should, people shouldn't even fund the Tories and he's got some money. I think it's like 882 million. He is something I read. He's saying people shouldn't even fund them. You know, at the conference, he's there going, you know, defund basically, which is pretty radical. Liz Truss is back signing things apparently she signed a copy of her mini budget <laughs> she's pretty funny <laughs> she's back and she's recovered incredibly well because it's seen that really she was mistreated a lot of the things weren't her fault necessarily it might have been the bank of england's fault all she wanted was growth and so she's actually come out of it at least in terms of the tory members really well obviously they didn't like the way she was ousted um but then you'll have the battle between the different wings of the tory right you'll have the battle of the free market Thatcherites versus the economic nationalists. You've got Truss and perhaps Frost in the in the more Thatcherite side, and then you've got maybe Miriam Cates, Danny Kruger on the economic nationalist side. What do you think to that sort of battle that, that will emerge? Because it doesn't seem like the Thatcherite side is that popular in in the country these days. Maybe it is at the Tory party. Conference. Yeah, I think the obstacle that the kind of free market conservatives like Liz Truss, Jacob face is that the perception within the party, certainly within the parliamentary party, is that Liz Truss tried that and it failed. It spooked the markets. You know, the thought of shrinking the size of the state as quickly as she wanted to shrink it, um, uh, cutting the highest rate of tax, um, not increasing corporation tax, etc. The kind of the, 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 
the conventional wisdom is that that spooked the market. So that's just not politically possible anymore. Uh, and they may also think that, you know, electorally, it wouldn't be very popular. Uh, what do you do about levelling up, you know, if, um, if, if you're going to try and reduce public expenditure? Um, so you don't get the impression that whoever succeeds Rishi, assuming he loses, and we can get onto that in a second, um, will be from that particular wing of the party. I think then it's it's more likely to be. If you look at, um, it feels to me as like it's more likely to be either Suella Braverman or Kemi Badenoch, um, and n- neither of them. Are, I mean, I guess Kemi is probably slightly closer to the kind of Thatcherite wing than Suella is, and Suella's more of a natcon and did in fact speak at natcon um but um i would have thought that um you know it's it's between two different versions of um uh the kind of um the conservatism that they represent rather than between someone like jacob reesmog pretty patel and one of those two i imagine pretty patel will be a candidate and she'll be feels as though she'll be the standard bearer, the candidate of the kind of truss resmog wing. But I can't see her defeating Kemi or Braverman. I think Farage ultimately leads some sort of party, but I can't see it's logistically how can it work? But just I just suddenly think it is possible given this conference, but maybe maybe he just comes in and, and one of those people lead as you're saying. One thing that's interesting to me is where you where you put Farage now in that in that um, sort of matrix of the uh, Thatcherite versus the more economic nationalist, because he seems like a classic Thatcherite sort of to- Tory, basically, who's been ousted from the actual Tories, but that's really what he is. But then, but then is he, because he's campaigned far more on cultural issues like immigration and now net zero, which is economic, but it's also ideological. He seems to have been playing, he, you know, he's talked about that far more. When mm. Peter Hitchens, who's usually right, he was wrong on this, accused him on GB News of being associated with the sort of free market Brexit, with that being the main driver. And Farage said, no, no, he was clearly about sovereignty and borders, which he was. So, I mean, where do you place him in that? I think that's always been a kind of schism in Nigel's thinking, in UKIP's brand identity. As you say, he's a classical liberal on most issues, certainly on economics. Um, uh, He's not a kind of natcom on economic issues. But He's also big on defending borders, wants controlled immigration, very patriotic. And for me, those were two almost irreconcilable components of Farage's and UKIP's brand. And I don't think he's ever quite successfully reconciled them. But was can do do you have to reconcile those because wasn't Thatcher, if you look at what Scruton said about Thatcher, wasn't she really like that? She she followed that. Hayek stuff and that Milton Friedman stuff because she was taught about it. But wasn't she instinctively a patriotic, small C conservative English classic sort of just English person who happened to get on into some of that stuff? Yeah, but I think she she did. I mean, I think ideologically she did manage to um, bring those things together into a coherent whole, you know, and that and that was Thatcherism. Um, but there is no equivalent. There is no equally coherent equivalent, um, you know, that any of her successors have been able to come up with. Interesting. Well, and one last thing I want to say about this before we get into the policy part you wanted to mention was that 
Sunak was interviewed by Christopher Hope. Did I say this already? And he was talking about change. He said, he said, you know, I want change. It was so strange. Where he said, we said that we don't know what Starmer stands for, whereas I'm sort of for change. And it's such a strange thing for the change candidate to be the person who's been in power, or his party's been in power for 13 years. And it was so odd because he was talking already like he was in opposition. But that is really how it feels. And of course, because he took over from Boris in that very strange way, from trust, you know, then Boris then, Boris was was the sort of the elected person. Then then it was trust. Then Rishi is like the sort of the opposition, basically, with Starmer being people thinking of him as already in. And the whole conference, from everything I've read and heard, was very much, what are we going to do after we lose the election? But even Sunak, who's the sort of last ditch attempt to win the election, also sounds like the opposition to me, which was interesting. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I think that, yeah, it, it's, it, it, always, it always seems a little bit implausible when an incumbent tries to present themselves as the change candidate. But yeah, that, 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 that particular irony crops up in almost every election. No one wants to, no one wants to fight on the platform of maintaining the status quo. Um, uh, But he, he himself though, I think um, definitely seems to have pivoted and not just on net zero. Um, it's as though, you know, nothing he was doing was working. He was staring electoral defeat in the face and so has gone all in on on these culture war issues. I mean, the, the conventional wisdom in the party until last week, you know, was um, uh, there's no there's no profit to be gained from leaning into the culture war. Um, the issues that people like you and I care about um, are not cared about by swing voters, voters in the red wall. Um, they care about bread and butter, retail politics, and that's how you win an election. Don't get distracted by getting pulled into the culture wars. I mean, I think that's wrong, um, and I've been urging, you know, successive Tory leaders to lean into the culture war, um, uh, but have been routinely ignored. Um, but in the last few weeks, um, uh, there seems to have been a complete 180 on that issue, and you see that. At this conference, so um, you know, Mark Harper, the transport minister, um, described fifteen-minute cities as sinister, and um, Rishi has said that um, he's on the side of the motorist in the war on motorists, and they're going to introduce this new kind of universal one-nation parking app, and they're going to review. Um, low traffic neighborhoods and various traffic calming measures. And they're going to threaten to uh, withdraw access to the national driving license database to make these measures, the fines unenforceable. Um, uh, Trans women are going to be banned from female hospital awards. That's something that Steve Barkley, I think, uh, is about to announce or has already announced. Swella Braverman, um, in her speech, um, has said that she's going to introduce a new criminal offence whereby sex offenders won't be able to change their names or change gender. So no more um, f- male sex offenders in women's prisons. Um, Michelle Donnellan, the science minister in her speech, um, denounced um, transgenderism as nonsense and said she was going to safeguard science from being corrupted by this nonsense. So, you know, across a number of issues, um, uh, they seem to be really leaning into 
the culture war. And um, it's great to see, you know, it's as though suddenly you know, these speeches, uh, it, they, they all read like they've been written by the editorial staff of the Daily Skeptic. I know some people might think you have been behind it, Toby, because you're so influential, which maybe we'll get onto in, in a second. But, <laughs> but my theory there is a couple of things. Well, one, is it just pre-election red meat, which is always this frustrating phenomenon whereby they suddenly do conservative things just before the election and you always go why can't you just do that the whole time and then it's back on with the sort of davos man agenda the rest of the time but one theory just came into my head there when you were talking was that it's gb news's influence that that has sort of put these issues in front of conservatives and obviously if you have people like mog working there and estimate vey and so on and portillo it's very easy to see how the tories will go oh we need to actually talk about these issues and presumably they've been polled by people like Matt Goodwin and the people have worked out that this is important. But yeah, it could be the influence of GB News or it could be your influence, Toby, as the 44th most influential person in the New Statesman chart. And um, maybe we should talk about that list a little bit because I read it today and, I, and I, by chance I hadn't realized that was the thing, although you did send me you being in it the other day, but I didn't realize it was the same thing. And I read through it. Farage was number one and Sunat was number two, which is telling in itself. But we've already <laughs> basically addressed that. Uh, I thought Lord Frost was a bit low. He should have been a bit higher, but he was in there. I think he was at 36. Liz Truss was at 50, which is too low, really, because she's there disrupting the conference and having a big impact still. So maybe she would have been a bit higher. Angelo, my boss at GB News, the CEO, is 29. Fascinating list. You beat Constantine by two places, which um, someone pointed out to me, won't say who. And um, everything in Constantine's entry was wrong, just very briefly, by the way. They said, well, they got Francis Foster's name wrong. Have you got wind chimes there, Toby, in your shed? I thought I heard uh, a wind chime there. I think that was just um, oh, okay. an alert on my phone. I'll turn oh, okay. That's the other thing, by the way. It's probably why you've injured your wrist is because you're sleeping in a tiny shed. But, but we, we can speculate on that later. Yeah, Constantine's entry, they got Francis's name on. They call him Francis Forster, which must be very annoying for him. They, call, they say Constantine, after years on the stand-up and comedian circuit, which is not a phrase, and Constantine was never really on the club circuit. He, he did a bit of comedy. He wasn't there years and he wasn't really on the circuit. These things are quite important to comedians because there's a difference between doing like 20 minutes in the big clubs like Comedy Store and all these things versus what Constantine did, which was sort of just didn't not to that level. But only comedians care about that. Uh, but he got 46. Oh, and they said that he founded Trigonometry in 2018. As I can tell you, it was 2017 because I was there. But um, yeah, little quibbles with his. So it made me think how many things are wrong in the other entries. But he got 46. You got 44. Were you pleased with that? Yeah, I thought I, w- I was pleased, not necessarily being 44, which doesn't sound um, <laughs> like I'm particularly influential. Um, but I guess I was pleased to see who I was ahead of, including the last prime minister. Um, so that was quite gratifying. I also thought it was um, it was a reasonably nice write-up of me. It said that um, when I was cancelled in 2018, after a career as a professional provocateur, taking things too far and most people thought they'd seen the back of me at that point you know that was the end of my career and yet here I am I've reinvented myself as the leader of the free speech union it didn't mention the daily skeptic or indeed the weekly skeptic so terrible omissions there but um, it was nevertheless a reasonably nice write-up. I was a bit gutted it didn't mention the weekly skeptic but after some of the media attacks I started to think maybe it's better that they haven't gone to the because this is going from the from the lefty new statesman so maybe it's better that they're not listening to the, the weekly skeptic. Yeah, it called you a well-known mischief maker, which is a good intro for you in future. But it said um the row over his suitability for a government role looked like the last act in an unpredictable career. <laughs> it's quite a funny I'm just laughing at the phrasing. I would never think that, but it's just a funny phrase. It is impressive the way you bounce back. 
But yeah, it should have, maybe it should have mentioned some of the other things. But you're right, six places ahead of the last prime minister is not bad going, actually, when you think about it not like that. Not bad going, yeah. Um, <laughs> some of them were surprised. I mean, they put Rory Stewart in at 20. He's not in any way a conservative. I mean, I know he's technically a conservative, but he's not in any way a conservative. It's kind of ludicrous. But it was quite interesting. I don't actually. I'm not even sure he's a member of the party because he did leave the party at one point when he failed in his leadership bid. Um, he, and he, I think he joined one of those other new, very short-lived parties. Um, I don't know if he's back in the Conservative Party, but I don't think so. Oh yeah, I, and I, I remember that as well. Yeah, I thought that as well. How strange. Yeah, I, I don't know what he was doing in there, but, you know, this is the new statesman. They probably just wanted to, I don't know, they think he's a conservative. I mean, it's a pretty ludicrous idea. He appears with Alistair Campbell on that podcast. I haven't listened to it except for one episode with Tony Blair. But, but I mean, I'm sure he skewers him on, like, the monarchy or something, but he's hardly a conservative just because of that. No. And they also had yeah, King like Charles in there on the, guys that, on the grounds that he's a traditionalist, like Steve Bannon. I'm like, there's nothing. <laughs> Those two have nothing in yeah, common, you know. Yeah. Yeah, Rod Little wrote a very funny piece um, uh, about these um, podcasts featuring two people that are supposedly on opposite sides of the political divide. And they're terribly interesting because it's interesting to find out what they agree about, what they disagree about, to hear the arguments that are convulsing British politics taking place between two politicians or ex-politicians on a podcast. And as Rod Little pointed out, the people they feature, like, you know, Alistair Campbell, Rory Stewart, Ed Balls, George Osborne, they disagree about almost nothing. You know, they just seem like they're all members of the Uniparty. Um, the notion that they kind of represent any kind of conflict or important debate in British politics is for the birds. I know it's ludicrous and it's going to be really annoying if they all do rubbish versions of the weekly skeptic, <laughs> just copying us. Of course, we're probably, we're probably further apart than they are and we don't even pretend to be. Um, but yeah, they're all uniparty people. Very, very annoying. Um, that was an interesting list. Do you want to go on to this story? We're keeping it very... Actually, they're all very similar stories this week. It's not really deliberate, but I thought we'd talk about the Suella multiculturalism scandal and the... That's too strong, but the backlash against her saying that multiculturalism has failed and people just either pretending not to understand or actually not understanding that phrase, including it turned out Rishi Sunak, who came back and said, no, it hasn't failed. And then off the back of that, there was Kemi's claim, which we'll get onto, that Britain is the best country to be black in. But this lack of understanding. So I understand multiculturalism like I thought everyone did, meaning that various cultures within a country who have not integrated, they've all stayed in ghettos. And that's multiculturalism versus assimilation being the opposite. So she can easily say it's failed. Now, Hugo Rifkin had a pedantic point that was technically right, where he said, what can multiculturalism has failed actually mean, given that it, on its own terms, it means a lack of properly integrating. So how can you say it's failed? Well, my answer to that is it means it's failed to produce good out- outcomes for society. Multiculturalism, meaning the ghettoization of various cultures and the failure to assimilate properly, has failed to give us a good or better country. That's what I take it to mean. Mm. You know, not that it's failed, not that multiculturalism has failed at assimilation, which would be an oxymoron. This is a fairly pedantic point, but it's worth making. Um but people just didn't seem to grasp it. They just seemed that they all said in a fairly borderline racist way, how can Suella say this? She's, you know, an immigrant with a Jewish husband, blah, 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 all these like James O'Brien type people and thinking they had this great, they hoisted it with this brilliant point and all they'd done was just reveal they don't know what multiculturalism means. Yeah. Um, yeah, it, it was uh, one of the um, elements of bad faith in the critique of 
Suella's speech was everything people were celebrating as um, examples of the success of our multicultural society were actually examples of our success as a multi-ethnic society. Um, and their failure to, to distinguish between multiculturalism and multi-ethnic Britain was, um, to me, very telling. Um, and it seems to me that, yes, we are a successful multi-ethnic society. Um, uh, and the success of Rishi Sunak, Swella Braverman, Priti Patel, across the board, um, uh, uh is evidence that we are a successful multi-ethnic society. You're not denied opportunities in our society because of the colour of your skin. We are, by and large, a colourblind society. Um, and as Kemi pointed out, there is no better country in the world in which to be a black person. Um, it's one of the least racist societies in the world. Um, African-Caribbean boys do better than poor white boys. They're more likely to get into university. Um, you know, by... Any number of metrics, um, uh, different ethnic groups in Britain are more successful than you know the indigenous white population. Um, uh, so, multi from a multi-ethnic point of view, we are a very successful society. Um, that doesn't mean that multiculturalism hasn't failed, um, and it's failed in you know in, in that. Oh well, um, it's it, my my sense of what champions of multiculturalism mean by multiculturalism when they're not just confusing it with multi-ethnicism, if that's a word, is that, you know, a balance between preserving elements of your cultural heritage, a connection with your relatives in, you know, the country your parents or your grandparents originated in, and combining that with a degree of assimilation, of feeling British and making Britain your first loyalty and your kind of cultural heritage and the country that's associated with your second loyalty. Um, and, and it has failed in that that seems to be increasingly less true. Um, but, um, uh, uh, and, you know, there seems to be more conflict between different ethnic groups who feel as though their membership of their particular identity group trumps their patriotism, their sense of Britishness, their membership of the nation state. Um, so in that respect, I think Suella's right. Multiculturalism has failed, but that's not to say we aren't a very successful multi-ethnic society. Yeah, absolutely. But people always look for the worst with Suella. They hate Suella. She could do herself some favours. A little bit in common with Trump in the way that she says things that aren't completely clear. They're kind of bold and attention-grabbing, but then they lack a bit of clarity, which always leads to these annoying ambiguities. Although, I, I mean, I don't think that one was unclear. I think it was like bad faith, as, as you're saying. Um, and then, I don't know how related this is. It feels somewhat related. We had Kemi Baynock saying... Britain is the best country to be black in. That's on the Daily Mail last night. or the, Well, today. We covered it last night on Headline. That's the headline from today, actually, Tuesday. So Starmer had said that black history on X, he said, black history is British history. Our diversity is one of our greatest strengths. My Labour government will introduce a race equality act to tackle structural racial inequalities. Hashtag black history month. I said, finally, someone is going to tackle structural racial equalities like Poor white boys being the least likely group to go to university. Thanks, Keir. That's the kind of thing I mm. say, isn't it, on X? I mean, that you wonder how much more 
we can do for racial inequalities and what horrors that um, Starmer has in store there. And, and Badenoch has, in a sense, replied to this by saying that Starmer would bend the knee to those who would re-racialize society. And she says, it's a great place to be black. It's the best country in the world to be black because it's a country that sees people, not labels. Any thoughts, Toby, or is it just more of what we were already saying? No, I think, um, I mean, I think um, one of the reasons um, Rishi Sunak has thrown in his lot uh, with the gender crits in the civil war between gender crits and trans rights activists is because he sees that as, you know, the turf on which he wants to fight the next general election. That's that's ground on which Keir Starmer is weak. His party is very divided on that issue. He's tried to straddle that divide by saying, what, 99.9% of women don't have penises, <laughs> uh, which is a pretty feeble fudge. Um, uh, but um, he can't go any further than that um, uh, without alienating large sections of his party and exposing himself to red-on-red attacks. Um, uh, and I think that's one of the reasons Labour were quite anxious for... Um, uh, the Tories to bring in a gender, a conversion therapy ban, you know, including banning, referring kids presenting with gender dysphoria to, you know, psychotherapists instead of just immediately sending them on medical pathways. Um, he, he doesn't want to deal with that issue because he knows it's an issue that divides his own party. He doesn't want to fight the general election over whether or not women have penises. So I think Rishi has twigged this and that's why he's gone all in um, on that particular issue. But I think the same is true of um, the issue of race. I'm not sure that is an election winner for the Labour Party. But I think Keir Starmer feels on firmer ground and he was talking this week about Labour's race equality act you know look what a success the equality act has been we're going to turbocharge the racial aspect of it and bring in a race equality act and as i said on x you know he said that it would deal with systemic racism you know it's going to address systemic racism and you think well why do we need a race equality act the equality act um makes it unlawful to racially discriminate against people with black skin, um, whether you're an employer or a service provider. Um, uh, uh, all the international survey evidences that Britain is a less racist country than almost every other country in the world. Um, uh, uh, the CRED report, I thought, did a pretty thorough forensic investigation into whether or not Britain was beset by systemic racism and concluded that no, it isn't. And, you know, the evidence that it isn't is pretty overwhelming. Um, uh, so what what inequalities, what discrimination and prejudice is the Race Equality Act going to address that isn't already addressed, hasn't been addressed? Um, you know, it's, 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 it's against the law to stir up racial hatred. Um, uh, we don't need another law to criminalise that. Um, it, 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 and I think if the Tories can get the electorate to focus on the idea that Labour think of black people as victims who require, you know, state handouts and a leg up and positive discrimination if they're going to succeed. Whereas the Tories just 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 see them as future see black people as future leaders, including of the Conservative Party, you know, not as victims, but as potential leaders. Um, then that 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 could be a vote-winning divide between the two parties. 
Yeah, it sort of reminds me of my recent interview with Doug Stokes on The Current Thing, where there's this academic industry that is based around continuing to find racism and colonialism where it doesn't exist. And what we see is that white people, affluent white people, are constantly inventing new types of racism while black people just get on with working and, and achieving on the right, like as you said, which is such a strange... You know, one all-white party with a white male leader, not all-white, but, you know, you sort of picture this white male middle-class leader, Starmer, repeatedly telling future conservatives, let's say Kemi, let's say it's Starmer versus Kemi in, in Prime Minister's questions. You'll have an absurdity of Starmer going, I'm sorry, this is a racist country. With Kemi there going, no, it's not. I'm leader of the It's just so absurd <laughs> that that, that yeah. could happen. And that's what is happening. And I think maybe Labour influenced by this thinking, we've seen the Independent this week have this piece, almost half of young black Britons plan to migrate amid racism concerns, landmark study highlights. It comes from the Voice newspaper, who apparently asked 10,000 people. And even in even in its piece, it says 45% of under 25 said they regard Britain as their permanent home, 39% want to live elsewhere. I, don't, I can't find the actual statistic where they claim it's almost half. But anyway, that's what they say in the piece. And it's... It's a strange idea. Later on, this Lester Holloway, editor of The Voice, says that there needs to be a national conversation about this. We need race back on the political agenda. And I'm thinking, all we do is talk about race. And we actually could do, we talk about it an awful lot less because Mm. as Kemi's pointing out, it's basically been one, more or less, never perfect, but one Mm. of the least racist countries in the world. You know, there's nowhere else. These black people, if they all want to leave, where are they going to go that's less racist? You know, there isn't really anywhere, I don't think. Yeah. So, um, do, do young black people want to leave in any greater number than young white people? I mean, I thought, you know, about half of young white people want to leave the country imagining that they, you know, have more opportunities elsewhere too. Yeah, the country's generally collapsing. Tax is too high. We all feel like it's <laughs> declining in that sense. But in a racial sense, it's actually doing well. But it's just that, in my opinion, this has been foregrounded constantly by the media and, and the left telling black people that it's a racist country, so now they want to leave. So, yes, that's, that's, that's my take on that. And um, on the, there's one other thing, but I've forgotten it. But on the multiculturalism part, I just wanted to quickly add one thing, which was Sunak himself has called it a misguided... No, no, she said, Suella called it a misguided dogma, I think. But Rishi Sunak said it should be proud, we should be proud of multiculturalism. And he said this bizarre sentence, we've done an incredible job of integrating people into society and describe the country as a fantastic multicultural democracy. So if it, so it's like changing them. You end up with a sort of nonsense sentence because you've changed the meaning of the words. It's like saying, mm. yeah, I want to halt immigration completely and welcome loads of brilliant new people to our country. It's like, <laughs> which one is it? So you can't, you're basically saying, yeah, we, we, we have an assimilated multicultural country. It's like, no, those are opposites, Rishi. It doesn't help that it's a kind of complicated word that people don't know. But He, he means we're a successful multi-ethnic society. That's what he means. Which, yeah, that's what he means. So the problem is the word. Um, anything further on that, Toby, or shall we move on? I don't think so. I think um, I think that um, one of the one of the things the Conservative Party has consistently neglected to do is to court minority ethnic voters and to leave leave them to be kind of won by the Labour Party. And yeah, it's true of the Democrats in the US too. But but maybe part of the thinking behind you know, Kemi saying things like that and the Conservatives trying to make the Conservative Party a broader, more multi-ethnic church is that they see that actually there's no reason why 
non-white Britons should naturally gravitate towards the Labour Party and see the Labour Party as their natural home, um, just as more and more non-white Americans are drifting towards the Republican Party now. Um, and, um, you know, I, I, I think that's um, that's a good election-winning strategy. Um, and there's no reason why, if you're a black Briton, you should regard the Labour Party as your natural home. No, indeed. It's going to be the party of of white middle class people who call you racist. I mean, when I even mentioned Kemi to the people I know in North London, the extended blob, they just think she's an extremist. They say that the Tories are racist. I say, well, why Why do we want Kemi then? And it, they can't really answer. I say, I actually know all these people, and obviously they're not racist, but they, they never met a, a Tory, so they just say they're all racist. And, the, and, and, the, and then they say Kemi's an extremist, which is just ridiculous, really. I mean, yeah, she's not at ridiculous. all, but... There you go. Very hard to get through to the, the blob people, as we know. Um, did you see Hancock on SAS Who Dares Wins? You know, I, I've only seen clips on X. I didn't I haven't actually watched any of the episodes yet. You have, have you actually watched it? I've watched it all. I mean, we're up to, I think, episode three, I think. And um, I always loved that show. I stopped watching when they axed Ant Middleton for sort of woke reasons, basically. Then you went over and did the Australian one. But I am watching this one because it's uh, they've still got Jason Fox on it and and uh, Billy is that his name? He's good as well. But they but they haven't got Ant Middleton. But they've got a couple of Americans in it, which is a bit weird because they can't really be SAS. Obviously, they can be some American lesser equivalent. But I'm like, should they be there? But it is great to see Matt Hancock pushed into various dirty lakes. I mean, that's a that's a winning show pitch right there. You're like Matt, you are going to be pushed into a lot of dirty lakes and mud. Okay. Oh, what I'm doing SAS. No, no, it's, a, it's just a new show called We Push Matt Hancock Into Dirty Pools of Water. No, it, it, it's great to see him scrabbling around in mud. I mean, this is just, he must know on some level that he's mm. kind of hated because he must think, I know, me pushed into mud and forced to do push-ups and burpees, people will love that. <laughs> yeah. Can you bet on the outcome? I know you can bet on the outcome of I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here. I expect you can because I wouldn't be at all surprised if Matt Hancock actually wins. And the reason I say that is because... What are Matt Hancock's qualities? Well, his most obvious quality is that he's a mediocrity. Um, he, he, he has no real talent. He's not very bright. Um, he's got no original ideas. He's a bit of a brown, brown-nosing lickspittle. Um, but yet he managed to get quite far in, 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 in national politics. You know, he had an important leadership position during the biggest crisis of this century. How did he get that far, given how talentless he is because he's dogged he's determined he's driven he's tenacious that's his that's his that's his kind of skill set it's perspiration not inspiration he's a grafter he's he's got stick to itness and one of the things that reality shows reward is that they don't reward talent you don't have to be witty a good conversationalist Particularly brilliant to win a reality show. You just have to be dog. You, you have to be likable if there's a kind of element of the public voting for you. Um, but for the most part, you just have to you just have to be dogged and tenacious, and you know you just kind of go for it, and nothing will interrupt your kind of uh, uh, desire for the prize. And he's got that in spades, so it's quite sensible, you know, given how completely talentless he is. That you know he's ended up as a reality TV star, and um, if he, if if I can imagine, you know that, that this isn't the last reality show that we'll see Matt Hancock in. That's kind of how I see you, Toby. Not 
Not so much the talentless part, but the dogged part. And actually, you've been asked to be on reality shows, so it, wouldn't you fit that mold as well? You might struggle with the hand on this show. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I was I was asked to do um, Cele- Celebrity Big Brother back in the very beginning. Um, I think it was the second season of Celebrity Big Brother, but um, and I and I sort of you know flirted with the idea until they told me it was unpaid, as it then was, um, and uh, so that didn't really appeal. <laughs> No. Well, I hate to say though, Toby, I think you are wrong because watching the show, he's just not going to be able to cope with the physicality of it. He's already struggling with that. That's what's going to get him because it is incredibly tough. Whenever I watch it, I don't end up thinking, oh, I could do that. Even though I, you know, strength train three times a week, play football, run, box, except I've knackered my wrist now. I never look at it and I think I'd be floundering because it is really hard physically. And so who's, I think who's doing much better is Gareth Thomas, who not only a rugby player, but also gay and HIV positive. I mean, that's a slam dunk for Channel 4. I mean, he's got yeah. it all. He's got the physical side and he's got the story. And you know who else is doing really well is Gareth Gates, who's proven to be very uh, robust. And he's got a stammer, so that helps. And, and it's also a comeback story. You remember Gareth Gates? No. From a Pop Idol or one of those? Yeah, Pop Idol in 2002. And he's back. Um, I was, you don't remember him. He, he either won or lost to Will Young or he just beat Will Young and okay. then but didn't do as well as Will Young. Uh, yeah, he's there, and he's actually really good. I mean, they sprayed the blooming point, the gas on them. You know, they do the gas. They gas them. It looks really nasty. They're all, like, they're foaming at the mouth. They're like, eyes are knackered. They can't see. He did really well on that. I'm like, wow, Gareth Gates is withstanding tear gas. So you're always surprised who comes out well. And there's right. a couple of women who will come through as well. There's one who's been to, like, some some posh school who has that quiet kind of posh school confidence not not normally like quiet but she's sort of quite you, i can see her coming through and i can see gareth gates and gareth thomas doing very well hancock's going to struggle because he's just just not physically got it toby do the public vote at the end of each episode no they just they're to... just ousted by the staff or or they right, withdraw right. themselves right okay yeah, it's very tough it's very grueling i mean either of us would struggle toby you're you're more suited to probably the big brothers <laughs> sort of sat there with uh you know whoever it is vanessa Feltz or something um do they still do Big Brother? I think they do. Yeah, I've got no yeah. idea. Okay, I'm waiting for that adult, that older version of Love Island they're planning, where it's like older people oh. love. It. I think that would be perfect right. for me. Right, that would be. Yeah, you'd be brilliant on that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I'd, I'd definitely watch that. That's Hancock, poor old Hancock. So, actually, coming up to the hour, Toby, would you like to do our advert? Yeah, sure. So this is from the one and only. You guessed it. Thor. Uh, Feeling shy or hard done by? Meet George. In and out of the care system as a child, wee George began working in a mobile phone shop after school. He got chatting to a guy one day who turned down his deal of the century payment plan and bought the phone for cash. Surprised at his ability to do this, young George asked, how come, mister? The cash buyer advised young George, get into property, son. 20 years later, George McNee, known as Geo, drove me to the Conversations with an Investor podcast studio in his Lamborghini. Geo is no Flash Harry, though, still preferring the humble neighbourhood of Glasgow he's lived in with his family for many years. He's also generous. We fought to pay the post-podcast restaurant bill, and he put me up in one of his many excellent Airbnbs for free. The moral of the story is, even if you feel a bit shy, have the conversation. Make the connection. 
You can hear our entertaining interview, this is an interview between Thor and Geo, on the latest Conversations with an Investor podcast. And you can book a coaching conversation with me, Thor Holt, by WhatsApping me on 07906 321 That's 07906 321 Or connecting with Thor on linkedin.com slash in slash Thor Holt. That's linkedin.com slash in slash Thor Holt. All right, thanks to Thor. Now let's do our occasional section. It's Across the Pond. So, a couple of Across the Ponds that were quite interesting this week and quite disturbing, really. The first one concerns Trevor Bauer, who is a star pitcher for the Dodgers in the Major League Baseball. And he and this is kind of a correction in a way for, not a correction, but we talked a lot about Russell Brand and Toby got a bit of stick for some of his comments about the way we should approach that. Some people felt you weren't sort of on, well, on the side of due process enough. You explain why you were. We've actually had a couple of one-star reviews this week because of your views in it, so that's unfortunate. But those people, if, they're not, if they haven't quit listening, will like this. So he was accused falsely by this woman who said, next victim, star pitcher for the Dodgers, this woman, Lindsay Hill, and she actually texted that to a friend. She said, what should I steal? I already have my hooks in him. You know how I roll. She said she was going to be an absolute whore to try and get in on his 51 million. So she was just saying, I'm going to go to this guy's house and absolutely rip him off. She then claimed to have been assaulted. I think raped by him. She, But a video resurfaced. Or I don't use that press word, resurfaced. I think he got it because of discovery. Or he found it or was allowed to show it now. And it was a video of her the, the morning after looking completely fine, filming it herself as a selfie. Clearly, you know, hadn't been assaulted. And there's a later picture where it looks like she's claimed to be assaulted, which so she's just made it up. Anyway, he wasn't allowed to talk about it for two years, but has now been able to release all this. And the media just completely stitched him up, of course. People were horrendous. Everyone was just assuming it was true. And it's just a clear example of how, of just false accusations, which are... A serious problem. What did you make of it, Toby? Yeah, I, I, I'd never heard of this guy. And um, I did watch the video because you sent it to me. Um, but it was, you know, he, he sort of took it for granted that you'd know who he is, what he's being accused of. Um, and um, so it was all a bit baffling um, without that kind of backstory. Um, but it certainly seemed like um, a pretty horrendous um, attempt to exploit him by falsely accusing him of a sex crime. And I'm glad he's been exonerated. Yeah, there were attacks on Molly King, this journalist who reported it. Actually, and it seems that she already should have known that it was false. There's information that she already would have known aspects of it were false, but she reported anyway. Anyway, yeah, if people haven't followed it, it's hard to explain, but it is quite big. If you look at it on X, if you go to the video, Ben Shapiro's posted about it. And it's, it's, it's pretty big, although it is largely an American story. But it just shows, it's just, it, when you get to a certain level of stardom, you know, Ronaldo called it part of the job. It's not to say that these things don't happen, but we saw Mendy was released. He seems it was falsely accused. Ronaldo claims to have been falsely accused. And you just see this happening again and again now. This is just, this is just going to happen. You reach a certain level of sports fame. It seems to be sports particularly, not just sports though. And that's it. You get, you know, and what, what happens to the person? You, this guy's lost two years of his life. He's not being able to get any money out of this woman because she doesn't have any money. So he, he spent the money just to reveal the truth, just to be able to go to Discovery and get all these documents. Mm. 
and he'll talk about it now, but will the press report on it and say, sorry, we got this massively wrong. Here's massive stories about it. No. And some of the stories that are coming out now are like disgraced MLB star, you know, is now, you know, now settles with this woman. So that's the only headline you get. So it's like, well, he's not disgraced anymore, is he? Uh, so people are running headlines like that. So it's all pretty disgusting. And I just thought I'd give that some balance. Would that, would it, if you, I did look him up on Wikipedia. And um, even though he's clearly completely innocent in this particular case, the one he's describing in this video and you know, the evidence he presents to that end is pretty overwhelming. Um, but um, I think there are two, possibly three other accusers as well um, referred to on his Wikipedia page, uh, which isn't to say, you know, he's obviously guilty or there's no smoke without fire. But this isn't this isn't the um, only accusation he's, he's faced down. Yeah, but I find it equally likely that other people have come forward and done the same. And I don't know about those other ones. But... I do think the culture is changing gradually. Men have been hated for so long, not just because of this, but lots of things. We saw the clip we discussed last week, which obviously ended up in that Lawrence Fox story. But initially, it was just a clip with you know on BBC about women minimizing male suicide. We talked about that. But that, when I speak to normal women in the real world, they're very much sick of the anti-men agenda in the culture. They're saying they've had enough of it. It obviously is damaging to women as well. And I see that becoming more and more a thing. I see the word misandry being on the map more and more. Obviously, we've got to deal with it properly and not, you know, get insulting and not attack women. But, you know, if we deal with it properly, I think this is going to become more and more of an issue because it's just not good for anyone. It's, it's awful. Who does it help? And I think women are really mm. sick of the agenda now as well as men. That's just an overall note on society. But um, there was this other one across the pond, which... I mean, hopefully people can understand these from me just explaining, because this one was bizarre. This was Josh Kruger was shot dead in Philadelphia. And what was disturbing and spooky about it was that he is someone who had played down violence in Philadelphia. He's a leftist who had constantly played down their violence there. Now, that's not that surprising because people on the right were attacking the violence there. You know, look what happens to these cities where they're degenerating, you know, the left can't run anything and so on. Whereas he was saying, no, no, it's completely fine. But the really spooky one was Scott Adams wrote a, t- a tweet in, it would have been a tweet back then, in 2020 saying, if Biden is elected, there's a good chance you'll be dead within the year. And then Josh Kruger quote tweeted this, now would be exit it, and said, the Dilbert dude is like Nostradamus. Look at this prediction from 2020. Wow, eerie. And he's mocking the fact that it hasn't happened and you haven't died. But then Josh Kruger himself was shot dead two days later after posting that. I mean, that is extraordinary. And then Scott Adams said, oops, did not realize he was shot to death yesterday for not getting away from the hellhole in which he lived. So it reminded me somewhat of that Democrat woman who said, let's dismantle the Minnesota police, then got mugged. And there's going to be more and more of this. But it it, it seems the left never realized this. They never adjust and adapt. And of course, I'm not gloating about this guy's death. And many have on X, and I find that distasteful. But they never seem to learn they just they will continue to promote the policies that put them in mortal danger. Yes, you can anticipate this becoming a kind of running theme, can't you? Like various Democrats, liberal journalists who were sympathetic to Black Lives Matter, called for the police to be defunded, played down the problems in their Democrat-controlled cities and states. When they get mugged or murdered. Um, uh, it'll become a kind of told you so um, a kind of running story. It reminds me actually of the stories which we saw quite often 
um, during the pandemic, which was people who didn't get vaccinated dying of COVID um, in hospital wards and kind of expressing deathbed regrets about not getting vaccinated. But there was a kind of there was there was always a kind of the suggestion in the coverage of those stories that it was the kind of the vaccinated gloating about the deaths of these troglodytes who thought they could get away with not being vaccinated or they were stupid enough to believe the conspiracy theories about the vax um, and they got their comeuppance. So um, we have to, I, 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 that, that always left a pretty bad taste in the mouth. Um, uh, so we should avoid, I think, trying to gloat, as you say, when um, Democrat after Democrat after radical journalist after Antifa member um, uh, uh, succumbs to violence in um, blue states and blue cities. All right, well, that was Across the Pond. Now let's go across to Will with our top stories of the week. So I'm here with Will Jones with the Daily Skeptic's top stories of the week. So, Will, I guess uh, we should probably begin with the fact that um, the two people who can claim most of the credit for inventing the mRNA technology um, earlier this week um, picked up uh, the Nobel Prize for Medicine. Um, lots of people tweeted a picture of them, each wearing masks, um, supposedly a picture of them receiving their Nobel Prizes, and suggested this meant they didn't have much confidence in the vaccines developed using their own technology, uh, because if they did, and assuming they'd been vaccinated, why are they wearing masks? Um, but in fact, that was a picture of them receiving a prize last year. But nonetheless, the point stands. But um, as Robert Kogan revealed in The Daily Skeptic, that wasn't the only or that isn't the only reservation, at least one of the recipients, Drew Weissman, Weissman has about um, mRNA vaccines. That's right, Toby. Yep. So the Nobel Prize has almost inevitably, you might say, gone to these uh, pioneers of mRNA vaccine technology. But yes, uh, Drew uh, Weissman, let's call him that, uh, wrote an article as recently as 2018, uh, Robert Kogan points out in The Daily Skeptic, in which he expresses some serious, the scientific paper, uh, in which he expresses some serious reservations about uh, the technology, the mRNA technology that he's been uh, working on and developing. He notes uh, local and chief safety concerns include local and systemic inflammation. Uh, inflammation, of course, includes heart inflammation, which is uh, myocarditis and other forms of inflammation, autoimmune uh, problems, autoreactive antibodies, and blood clotting, of course, as we are familiar with from uh, the COVID vaccines, blood clotting, thrombosis. So, uh, and he raises these as, as issues that need further study. We don't, we don't have him on record uh, noting these issues specifically with the COVID vaccines once they've rolled out, uh, but it, it does seem telling and notable that he would have raised these uh, concerns about the technology in general, pointing out that these occurring problems with the platform very, very uh, shortly before uh, the actual COVID vaccines were developed and rolled out. So he hasn't broken his silence about safety concerns about the, uh, the actual COVID vaccines as far as we're aware, but you have to wonder what he is privately thinking about, uh, about that and, and the warning that he gave in 2018. Yeah, so that's uh, quite a good story, worth reading. We also published a story this week documenting the fact that Paul Offit, who was an advisor to the CDC 
and is still on one of the FDA's committees, confessing that he himself did not take the bivalent vaccine, which is the booster released late last year, which supposedly uh, boosted your immunity to two of the COVID strains, uh, but also isn't intending to take another booster. Now, this wasn't a fatal blow, as it were, to the vaccine zealots, because presumably he's been vaccinated and boosted already. And he's also had COVID. And his argument is the combination of being, what, triple vaccinated and having had COVID means that there really isn't any point in me getting any more boosters. But he also said that one of the reasons he didn't take the bivalent vaccine is because he has safety concerns about it. And that's an unusual confession for someone so closely associated with the vaccines and promoting the vaccines to make. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So the big news this time. So earlier in the year, uh, or back, right back at the start of the year, he confessed, as you said, about not taking the bivalent vaccine. And at that point, he just said it was because he didn't think he needed it. He thought he'd already sufficiently protected and, and was very critical, actually, uh, withering, uh, you might say, about the very poor uh, quality of the data that was presented to his committee on the FDA for the efficacy. If you remember, it was all based on about eight mice um, or uh, something like that. I mean, completely, completely ridiculous. He was he pub- he went public with his criticisms of that. But the, the big news this time that um, this this time he said he's not getting the new booster, and he specifically highlighted safety concerns. Uh, he was he remained silent on that back uh, last time, but this time he's really made clear his safety concerns. He says um, he even warns uh, we're going to find out about this vaccine over time, uh, implying that he is expecting this to become a much bigger uh, scandal uh, and a much wide, more widely recognised scandal. He says, we were certainly we were surprised by myocarditis and we'll see whether or not over time, when we're five years into this, 10 years, 15 years, whether there's any evidence of residual myocardial disease. Because the reason you have myocarditis is you're making immune response to your own heart muscle, showing that he really understands uh, the issue here. And we'll find out about that over time he says. So it's barely been covered by uh, by the media, as you would expect by now, unfortunately. But it is a, it is a significant uh, intervention in that this is uh, a, a man who's been uh, central. He's been part of the committees approving and recommending these uh, vaccines in America. And he's publicly putting on record his concerns, both about efficacy and now about safety. Okay. And so that's um, two stories raising safety flags about mRNA vaccines. And then we also republished a story by the journalist Igor Chudov, highlighting some recent evidence that the mRNA COVID vaccines cause heart damage for everyone, not just those in vulnerable populations, but the hearts of everyone who've taken, is that right, who've taken the mRNA COVID vaccines um, have been adversely affected, uh, though to a greater or lesser degree. Yeah, very worrying uh, results from being published in the peer-reviewed journal Radiology. Major results assessing myocarditis, uh, looking at uh, levels of a certain chemical that tells abnormal heart muscle action, whether something's going wrong. And they found uh, alarmingly in all of those uh, who've taken the vaccines for some time as well, not just for uh, not just short term they found this chemical signal of abnormal heart function. So very worrying results need to be duplicated to um, check one study at the moment, but it is consistent with everything else that we've been learning about 
uh, the vaccines. The editor of the journal, or the editor emeritus, uh, Dr. Blumke, who's professor of radiology at uh, the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine, he was so worried that he actually wrote an editorial about this study, uh, really raising the alarm, effectively saying, pointing out the implications of it, and saying there's no rational way to ignore it, um, or to explain away the negative findings, that it's not just by chance, and really needs to be looked into. So we can see uh, gradually more studies coming out showing these problems, which obviously first surfaced way back at the start of the rollout of the vaccines back in early 2021. But yeah, another study really laying out uh, the problems and showing them from another angle. Yeah, I said that the study shows that the hearts of everyone who's taken the mRNA COVID vaccine have been adversely affected. That was a slight exaggeration. They just show that everyone who's taken that vaccine's hearts have been affected. We don't know for sure that that is an adverse effect at this point, only that their hearts have been affected. Okay, so I think the fact that three stories this week raising safety concerns about the mRNA COVID vaccines, which makes the fourth story we're going to talk about quite alarming, which is um, something of a scoop for us. Nick Hunt, one of our regular writers, FOI'd the MHRA, the UK Medicines Regulator, and discovered that they hadn't road tested um, the mRNA COVID vaccine um, as um, diligently as um, they sort of claimed to have done. Um, uh, Do you want to tell us a bit about that? That's right, yeah. June Rain, back at the in December 2020, as head of the MHRA, assured, every, assured us all that no corners had been cut when getting the COVID vaccines through the regulations, through the testing in record time, as we know, in just a matter of weeks or months. And yet this FOI that Nick Hunt has obtained has found that key safety testing was not done specifically on the mass-produced vaccines. The really important thing to understand here is that vaccines are produced in two different ways. There's something called process one, they call it, which is when it's done on a small scale and they produce a a relatively small amount for doing the trials and the safety testing. And that's the vaccine process and the vaccine product that undergoes safety testing in the trials. So that's what all the data is based on. But then you use a different process to mass produce the vaccine. It's called process Two, it's a different way of making it. It doesn't have to go through all the same full trials, but there are strict regulations that cover safety testing to specifically of that process, mass-produced process two vaccine product to make sure that it is the same thing um, and has the same properties as the process one uh, that was tested through the trials. And of course, the MHRA assured us that they would be doing this following these regulations. They are regulations after all, and that they would be testing the mass-produced vaccine, testing a sample of the batches, especially the first batch. So uh, Nick said, fine, uh, let's find out what they said. So he did an FOI requested the report from the MHRA that the MHRA had produced on this testing say well tell us what it showed and the bombshell result as Nick uh, puts it and I, I agree with him it is a bombshell is that they have finally admitted after a lot of a lot of trying to avoid answering the question they finally admitted that they never actually produced that report uh, which implies of course that they never actually did the relevant testing um, the requirement uh, to do that testing remained as a condition of the authorization until uh, last September, so this time last year, when the uh, MHRA and also the European uh, counterpart, the EMA, uh, actually accepted Pfizer's argument 
uh, that the, that comparison was unnecessary due to, get this, the extensive usage of vaccines manufactured via process two. In other words, look, we rolled it out and nothing's gone wrong. It's all fine. And so we don't need to do this testing that, that we, you're supposed to do and have to do. And we promised you uh, because we've proven by rolling it out that no problems have been caused. As we've just been hearing, Toby, regular uh, readers and listeners will know the idea that the vaccine rollout has not produced side effects and adverse events that would require some kind of safety testing is not true. So, yeah, bombshell, um, as you say, a bit of a scoop. Yeah, very good. Well, I, I'm feeling more and more relieved, Will, that I haven't myself been vaccinated. Um, I don't think you have either, have you? I avoid disclosing that information because ah, okay. to, to avoid unnecessary discrimination, maybe that's a bit a bit over the top these, when we're so many years into it. But uh, yeah. Uh, all right. Thank you very much, Will, with our top stories of the week. Thanks, Toby. So that was Toby and Will. Now I'm back with Toby and let's go and do everyone's favourite section. Although I shouldn't say that anymore because there are so many great sections. But of course, it's Peak Woke. Now, Toby, I didn't have loads of Peak Wokes this week. I've got a couple, but do you have any really good ones you're just desperate to say? Well, the best one I came across was it was a story in Redux, which is a new kind of um, online gender critical news publishing site. Uh, Lots of great stories, actually, um, that always get followed up quite widely, particularly in the mail. Uh, But their big story, I think it was last week, is that they found this... um, trans identifying male who works for a UK-based charity that provides diversity training had been honoured at the LGBTQIA plus champion 2023 awards. They've been honoured in the category of outstanding female. So um, a man actually won outstanding female at the LGBTQIA plus awards. Um, which was um, pretty extraordinary. Um, And, you know, it shows that, you know, all the bits in the kind of alphabet on either side of the T are now meaningless. You know, it's basically the T's have taken over the entire alphabet movement and they're winning all the prizes. Yeah. I mean, you say it's extraordinary, but it's almost standard at this point now, isn't it? It's almost, it it seems like trolling, but it isn't. I think they're just that deluded. And maybe I should build on that one with this one. Navy personnel told to introduce themselves with pronouns and trans guidance. So Navy staff have been urged to avoid microaggressions and to keep constantly educating and researching about trans matters. This comes from the Telegraph. Um, They've been told about white privilege and intersectionality. And they've had a note that says, if you're white, whatever situation you're in, it's almost always the case that the outcome has not been affected by your skin color. One might beg to differ if you're a poor white boy being the least likely group to go to university. But it's obviously completely insane. And, and to do this in the Navy, as Admiral Lord West points out, when you want to be one company, you have to, it's really crucial that you're one team where, and you're not really not divided into groups based on your race. I mean, imagine that. I mean, I was watching, I watched actually two Navy films this week. I, I watched The Master and Commander because Carl Benjamin put out a brilliant list of films Zoomers have missed. And actually, I, although I'd obviously seen most of them, like Fight Club and stuff, I'd actually not watched Master and Commander. So I watched that. Then I got in the mood and watched Captain Phillips. It's a brilliant film. But imagine if on those ships, Toby, they'd all been having little classes about intersectionality and white privilege. <laughs> they wouldn't have been able to beat those pirates. They wouldn't have been able to slash up the French. You know what I mean? With the Napoleonic yeah, no, Wars. Uh, and I gather the Navy has now um, uh, withdrawn 
that guidance and it's now under review following that story breaking. Um, yes. I, 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 I want to take this opportunity to give a little plug to the Free Speech Union because um, we we had a successful outcome of a case last week, a guy called Sean Corby, um, who works for ACAS. Um, and um, he was uh, he, he got into difficulty um, in his workplace um, because of he got into a debate on JAMA, which is a kind of workplace intranet um, at, with various colleagues that he hadn't met. They were in a different office in another part of the country. Um, but um, he was defending, you know, the Martin Luther King approach to tackling racism, which is to judge people by the content of their character rather than the color of their skin. And because he had said this, because he had sort of essentially restated that Martin Luther King philosophy, uh, he was accused of being, you know, a colorblind racist. Um, and these various um, uh, complainants um, said that, you know, people of color in his workplace probably wouldn't feel safe around him because he'd endorsed the views of Martin Luther King. I mean, ludicrous. And um, uh, they demanded that ACAS investigate him for these racist comments, um, which of course weren't remotely racist. Um, uh, and ACAS did not investigate him. And we actually defended him in the first round of that battle. Um, but they nonetheless asked him to take down these posts. So he then um, uh embarked on taking ACAS to the Employment Tribunal for discriminating against him on the basis of his beliefs, his belief in colorblindness. Um, and um, uh, the, 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 the Employment Tribunal ruled last week, or at least it became public that it had ruled this last week, um, that actually criticizing critical race theory, endorsing the views of Martin Luther King, uh, is a protected belief under the Equality Act. So he can now begin to um, bring a case against ACAS for belief discrimination. Uh, but that was an important victory. And even though first-tier tribunal decisions aren't binding on other tribunals, nonetheless, it will be um, uh, a precedent which... Um, will hopefully have some influence the next time this kind of thing is considered. And it, it has effectively established that um, not believing in critical race theory um, uh, is a protected belief within the workplace under the Equality Act. So in future, it'll be harder to discriminate against employees, punish employees for challenging the kind of shibboleths of critical race theory. All right, excellent. Say what you want about Toby. He does the hard work for all of us in the Free Speech Union. Um any any other Pete Wells Toby? I've got one more. Uh, well, there was a, a story that broke actually on GB News yesterday um, about um, a charity called Schools for Sanctuary, and it's a kind of offshoot of another charity called Cities for Sanctuary, and it's a kind of pro asylum seeker charity. And Schools for Sanctuary, um, uh, what it does is it um, it provides all these materials uh, for schools to teach children, primary schools as well as secondary schools, about how welcoming we should be to asylum seekers and how evil people like Nigel Farage and Suella Braverman are. And um, it encourages school children to um, befriend 
um, uh, children of asylum seekers. Uh, in one case, a group of school children were encouraged to go on a march to Downing Street to say how wrong they thought um, our asylum policy is and we should be much more welcoming. Um, and um, ludicrously, this charity has claimed that there's nothing political about um, uh, any of these materials or any of his activities in schools. Um, yeah, because you're not supposed to um, teach about politically contentious issues, such as, you know, what should our policy be towards asylum seekers? Uh, you're not supposed to teach about it other than in a very balanced way in which you give a balanced presentation of opposing views under Section 407 of the Education Act 1996. So political indoctrination is, is it's technically unlawful, political indoctrination in schools, but, you know, it's a law more honoured in the breach than the observance. And here's just another example, um, but um, quite a shocking example. And hopefully the DfE may finally do something about the widespread political indoctrination of children in schools um, now that this particularly egregious example has come to light. Yeah, I've always thought it's amazing how it is illegal, but it just blatantly continues. But yeah, I suppose that applies to so many things now in our woke world. Mm. Mine was a bit more trivial. Mine is um, former Disney screenwriter behind Bambi remake calls for scene in which the famous deer's mother dies to be scrapped because it's too triggering for parents and children. So saying you should scrap the pretty much the key scene in Bambi, really. I mean, <laughs> it is a disturbing and traumatic scene. I mean, I'm not going to, you know, when I remember when I watched as a kid, that stayed with me. And then when his father comes out, Bambi, that sort of stays with you, you know, forever, which suggests it is quite traumatic. But it's also iconic and the whole point of Bambi and, Without it, what, what, what is it about? Just a young deer that just messes about and has an easy life. I mean, what's mm. the point? There's no struggle. There's no There's no story if that doesn't happen. Yeah, and, um, you know, bad things happen in fairy tales. Bad things happen in the Harry Potter books. I mean, you know, children's literature is full of these traumatic, triggering episodes. But isn't the point to help children understand and learn how to process these tragedies in their lives, which they're bound to encounter. Um, so, yeah, the idea that you can kind of um, uh, uh, make children's stories much more anodyne by removing, you know, any content likely to make them at all sad is, is ridiculous. Pretty ridiculous. I mean, imagine, imagine if you just removed, imagine if you removed like Luke getting beaten by Darth Vader you know, yeah. Darth's not his father. I mean, doesn't lose it. Doesn't doesn't lose a hand. Just loses a fingernail. Yeah. Right, right. His hand looks like yours at the moment. Yeah, he, he doesn't. You've got the uh, animatronic hand. Well, not animatronic, whatever it's called. But yeah, doesn't lose a hand. Everything's fine. I mean, yeah. But that's why you know, wokeness can't do movies. So, but it's actually an opportunity for conservatives because, as I've said before, the hero's journey is inherently conservative. Whether the, and I and I believe the hero's journey is universal or close to universal. I can't totally prove it's not just Western. But the hero's mm. journey is certainly conservative. It's about individual overcoming, right? Yes. And that's what makes good movies. Good movies actually yeah. are inherently conservative, is my claim. Yeah, it's that's true. Yeah, there is the, the hero's journey is essentially a celebration of individualism, isn't it? It's saying, um, you know, you can make a difference. You don't have to be acted upon by these dark um, forces beyond your control. You can become. The protagonist in your own story uh you can self-actualize and you can overcome that's that's yeah that's a very very conservative message yeah and there's always that bit where they refuse the journey and they go nah it's not for me you know in all classic yeah. stories 
and then, and then Luke does it. The Matrix. It just it happens in everything. And then they and then, but that's like playing the victim. And then they go, no, I have to rise up and overcome, or something happens that forces them to. And it's extremely conservative. Get on your bike, sort of message. So, you know, look at that's why Clint Eastwood films are so good. Yeah, um, and you often see that that particular storyline. Um, as you say, it kind of it, it seems to follow the same pattern in story after story, and the most successful, most popular films, best selling children's books they all seem to follow that same hero's journey pattern um but you often see it in politics too you see kind of clever political strategists kind of taking elements of the hero's journey and trying to kind of place their candidate into that framework and it can be very successful like the idea of a comeback after you've in the hero's journey often you know the hero is is initially defeated and you think he's down and out and he has to pick himself up, dust himself off and and go back into battle. And next time he wins. Um, and you often see that that's a kind of recurring theme of successful political campaigns, like in Bill Clinton's case, the comeback kid. I'm sure that, that you can see the kind of narrative around Rishi being built that, you know, everyone thought he was down and out. Um, he, he, he was facing a rebellious party. He didn't have the confidence of the members. He was 20 points behind in the polls. But he's the comeback kid. Instead of accepting his fate, he fought back. He gave it all he got. He decided he was in it to win it. And look, here he is now fighting Keir Starmer there neck and neck. You know, it's quite a good narrative, but it, it resonates in the same way that those components of the hero's journey story do. I was going to say it takes us right back to the start with Farage. I mean, Farage is back. He's going to come back in, actually get into the Tory party and end up being the leader. I mean, wouldn't that be an incredible story? I and mean, he's nearly died three times, but he's also mm. been down on his luck politically and unable to get into the system. Isn't that an amazing story? He comes back, gets into the party, comes leader, wins, becomes prime minister against all the odds. It would be an amazing story. <laughs> I, I think, think it's, it's going to happen. happen. My gut says it's going to happen. And like George W. Bush, I always go with my gut. You're illustrating my point there. George W. Bush always goes with his gut. That was presumably, you know, part of his branding developed in consultation with various political strategists. And that idea that you go with your gut, that's always part of the kind of hero's journey too, isn't it? That's what Luke does, you know, in the final scene in the original Star Wars movie. He switches off the onboard computer, and he goes with the force, go, goes with your guts, basically the same thing. But that's what that, that's what the hero does. He stops listening um, to the kind of um, s- the siren voices and goes with his gut and prevails. Use the force, Luke. You're right. And then he shoots into the thermal port. Why did they leave that obvious flaw in the Death Star? We'll never know. <laughs> but yeah, all right, great point, Toby, and, and a good reference for nerds. And now let's go over to everyone's favorite section. It's review the reviews. But we can't really do review the reviews in the same way as we used to because Toby's chastised me too much. I can do it if I want because I'm the host, but he chastised me for getting too angry and thinks it's uncouth and his posh friends are complaining at dinner parties over the, the starter. So we better... Um... I, don't, I don't think it's... I, don't, I think you've got... I don't, I don't know why you have to kind of put this in a... See this through a class lens. Uh, I, I think... I'm not sure that um, it's posh people in particular that um, don't want to hear you kind of effing and blinding about 
people who've given us less than five star reviews. I think it just, uh, I think it's, 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 uh, some people like it, but um, I, I feel like they, they like it. They're not, they're not sort of laughing with you. They're so it's almost as though they're laughing at you. They like the fact that you're getting so wound up and you're so thin skinned. And it's like, you know, put a penny in the slot and watch Nick freak out because you've criticized, you've made a mild criticism of his presentation of the show i mean I, I thought i was you know i was i was for your benefit saying don't read the bad reviews out you'll just it'll just make you mad and um you know um uh, for your own peace of mind you know it is but it wasn't because i was wanting to you know protect the sensibilities or the sense of propriety of my posh dinner party friends <laughs> okay well i think they're just enjoying my comedic tour de force and uh, and it is a class-based thing because someone told me they laughed so much at that bit they nearly fed off their ladder you see, Toby, people are working up <laughs> ladders and listening to me, and uh, that's why it's class-based. Oh, but um, fair enough. Pruning you know, their apple tree. Yeah, yeah I think we're, well, I think <laughs> we're both apple. right. I think um, I could do it in a slightly less unhinged way. So someone says here, Fishy Rishi. Why does Nick insist on pronouncing Rishi as Rishi? I thought he was a northerner. It's Rishi, Rishi, it's Rishi with two eyes, as in Fishy Rishi. Okay, fine. I mean, I'm not Indian, though, am I? So <laughs> why would I know how to pronounce that? I just thought it was, I just thought it was Rishi. Okay, Andy, name not taken, says, everyone should listen to this. Great show. I fell into this from headliners. Ah, coming from the headlines. Nick and Toby, the perfect blend to deliver political and social commentary, which is critical, balanced, as well as entertaining top work chaps. Very good. Loving the Weekly Skeptic. I'm a recruit from London Calling. Realized it was no more, so followed Toby over to Weekly Skeptic. Really enjoying the discourse. Nick is fabulous. I also enjoy how irate he becomes during Review the Reviews. <laughs> Much more fun than listening to Dellen, Paul, and Toby slog it out over whether dinosaurs existed. I listen every week now, keep fighting the good fight, boys. So another argument there. This guy likes me, not Toby. Won't read that out necessarily because it's a bit, a bit insulting because uh, he, you think, you thinks you've gone on about toxic masculinity. Great stuff. Keep it up, guys. Five stars. Listens to it alongside trigonometry. Well, okay. You, you know, can't have everything. Spike and Jeff Norcott. Oh, good. Plus the current thing. Brilliant. And that came from... Be, be jiggered, apparently. Uh, that was five stars. It's much longer, but we don't have time to read them all out. Another excellent episode. This one, another five-star review. Thank you very much. But Toby, there are two one-stars, and they're purely because of your approach to brand. I don't have to necessarily read them out, but um, I don't know. What do you think to that? I mean, they're basically one of them is, is, is uh, saying that you support the cancellation of brand, and would you still support cancellation? Would you support... I wonder if Young would still support cancellation based on untried allegations if someone was accusing him of rape. Well... That's pretty dark. Um, <laughs> I mean, and then the other person just says that you're you're going for this smoke equals fire, bad behavior equals criminal judgment argument. I mean, I doubt you wanted to go into it a third time, but I guess you can't please everyone on that no, one. I don't want to. I don't want to have that argument again. Um, no, I think I you made we, your point thought, pretty well. I thought. Yeah, I thought we set out our respective positions pretty clearly um, last week. Um, I will say though that. Um, a second investigation has been opened into Russell Brown. That was news which broke towards the end of last week. So the police are now investigating another complaint against Russell Brand. Um, and uh, so it looks like, you know, criminal due process may be granted to him in due course. Interesting. Yeah, well, I mean, look, they're mainly five-star reviews and a couple of very rare, rare bad ones purely because of Toby's stance on brand. So what can I do, guys? Uh, it's not, <laughs> not even my fault. But yeah, we went over that pretty well. And, you know, we don't. I don't think you have to agree. I don't know. People seem to think you have to agree to like the podcast. Can't they just go, well, I really disagree with Toby on that one. I think he's completely wrong. And 
and continued to listen. I, you know, I, I would think that, but maybe not. Maybe it was so egregious they just couldn't. But hey, there we go. Most of them are still five stars and we appreciate all your support. And I do actually want to give an extra shout out to all the people I met who listen at the Together event. And then I was hanging around after. And I want to say a shout out to Ash, who loves the podcast and who bought me a drink off the back of it. And Lewis, who I believe was his son. I mean, if I've got that wrong, let me know, Ash. And Daniel from Nottingham. Good luck to Daniel. And Sue and Stu. And Catherine, who is a has a sort of normal job, but is a sort of secret turf. So I want to thank all these people. It was incredible to tell me the amount of weekly skeptic listeners. I was out of this event and it is together. So it's our kind of people. But the amount of people that stopped me, you know, just trying to go to the loo or get a drink and say, we love the weekly skeptic. And you're always welcome to do that, by the way. Yeah. Do you get more people coming up to you saying they love you on the weekly skeptic than they love you on headliners? Yeah, I think I do now, actually. Um, I do think I do. I think I have, I did have one from headliners or, and I had one from Lotus Eaters, which I haven't done in ages. But I had mainly Weekly Skeptic, at least at that event. So that's quite interesting, isn't it? especially because yeah. it's audio only. You think, like, how do they know what I look like? Yeah, I think I get more praise for podcasts than I do for anything else from people I just, random people I bump into when I'm out and about. Well, we have well over 20,000 listeners per week now. So, you know, this podcast is massive. Mm. It's hugely influential. People haven't quite realized yet because we've kind of done it a bit on the down low. We've just been focusing on building it. But I think one day soon, people will realize this podcast is absolutely massive. And, and then we'll probably be even more of a target, unfortunately. But we already have people yeah. digging through it, looking for anything offensive, which is not very hard to find with me, is it? Let's be honest. But yeah. It's all common. I think if the day ever comes when we leapfrog the rest is politics in the podcast chart, the offense archaeologists will just go to town. Um, they'll listen to every single episode and dredge up everything they can to try and discredit us. That's At the moment, we're, we're, we're happily, we've never got higher than five, so we're just about safe. But as soon as we do, the deluge. I know, and that's what was depressing about this week. I was about to go on air, and two people messaged me just before I went on air saying, I see they're coming for you now with no other content. Don't ever send that message, guys, really, because <laughs> it's a bit, it's a bit, I see, it's, it, you're showing concern, but it's a bit stressful. And then... It did make me think, if I ever get big enough, I'll just be immediately cancelled. I'll just go through everything. They went through Rogan's entire podcast. There's always stuff on podcasts. They're banter medium, and there's a huge amount of hours that go out. You say all sorts of stuff. They found some terrible stuff on Rogan, or they would say terrible. But he was too big to cancel because Spotify didn't want to lose all their money. Mm. So you've got to be either too big. I mean, I'm probably too small to go after, but there's that medium range where you're very cancelable. You know what I mean? Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, we were discussing before we came on air that um, now the Conservative Party is leaning into the culture war, is on the right side of all the issues we care about, not all of them, but most of them. Um, you know, the prospect of you becoming a Conservative Party candidate is more and more attractive. And yet the moment you do, someone's going to dredge up the fact that you've said on this podcast that you don't think women should have the vote. You know, that'll be the headline. Tory candidate, t- Tory select candidate who thinks women's suffrage should be withdrawn. Well, now you're just giving them more blooming ammunition to me. They only have to listen back one week now to get this one. And then they've got, they don't even have to go, but they just go straight to that quote. But yeah, I, have, I did meet someone who told me how I could get into being a, a candidate and how it's done. But yeah, I know that immediately they go through the whole podcast and I'm there just answering questions. Well, you have to understand, I was a comedian, and or, or do I just double down and go, well, you know, it would be better if, uh, if, if it was one vote for a household, because then the woman isn't pitted against the man in a, as a political entity. I just double down and like, no, no I that, think, that can't win. Can it? I think no, better to say, oh, that was, that was just my, that's just part of my comedy act. You, you, you're taking it far too literally. Get yourself a sense of humor. I think that's a better response. We'll go with that angle. Yeah. And then we'll yeah. delete 
everything we've just said there about where we debate how, which angle I should approach it for. The thing is, it's such a tragedy because I'd be so good as a candidate. I'm so likable, as everyone knows, and I'm so smart. And, you know, but not only that, and I'm so funny, but not only that, I'm just, you know, I care about people and especially want to help the people in the North, although apparently it wouldn't be like that. Apparently they place you just sort of wherever. But I just really want to help the people, Toby, but I'll never be given the chance because they'll cancel me instantly. You could take over from, yeah, who took over from Rory in Cumbria? Um, who, who's, who, is it still a Tory in that seat? Well, in you my could take, you could, you... seat, it's, it's Farron still in my parents' seat. But, is it? Okay, but, okay. What, from Rory Stewart? Yeah, Rory Stewart, his seat was Summer in the Lakes. Okay. In the Lake District, yeah. I need to check that. Um, anyway, we probably shouldn't have even put that bit in because they are out to get us, guys. But on the plus side, we are growing. We are a, a massive podcast. So if you do want to help us with the website for our new venture where you'll just be involved with helping us put video on the site and all that kind of thing, let us know because we do have some candidates already and I am going to get back in touch with all the candidates, by the way. So sorry about that. I've been very, very busy. The whole uh, world's been attacking me. But we we do still want people for the website potentially, don't we, Toby? I think so. We do, yeah. I mean, we should say thank you to all those people that have contacted us and who we haven't had an opportunity to get back in touch with yet. We put out uh, a call at the end of the episode last week for a web designer who could help us create a website. Um, we're hoping to create um, a publishing platform um, and put this podcast on that platform and um, put some other podcasts on it too. And the idea is that um, most of them would be, most of what we record would be available for free on all the podcasting platforms, but there'd be some premium content that you would be able to access on all the podcasts on this platform if you paid you know something like five pounds a month um and uh it's a tried and tested model it succeeded in the united states we want to try it here um and we're looking for a web designer who can help us realize that dream um and many people did contact us and we're about to reply and um start talking to some of you uh, but if you are interested in in designing the nick and toby website um uh, and um you're not too expensive because we don't have much money to spend on it. Um, do get that. in touch. You, you can find us at um, thedailyskeptic at gmail.com. Yeah, and just put website in the subject heading. And we do have a decent chunk of money. We don't make it sound like we, we, we'll pay you nothing. We'll, you would pay properly. But yeah, and this is not a diss on the people who've already applied. I just haven't got around to looking properly yet. But a couple of them already looked really good. So it may well be you, but we may as well just shout it out since we haven't gone through it yet. And I put out a tweet as well. And thanks to the person that and the people that responded to that. But Toby, you uh, could also put out a tweet if you wanted to really get some more people, but I don't think you have yeah, yet. But that's another option. But like I say, thanks to the people that have already applied. Maybe it will be you. We just need to set that up soon. And while we're here, please go to the current thing as well if you're so inclined. People are loving the podcast. I mean, everyone who goes across to the podcast loves it. It is a it is a mix of guests that you won't really get anywhere else. It's quite interesting. We, we cover culture war and politics, but we also do masculinity and comedy We've had uh, just had Dr. James Oron, who's very, very smart, very interesting. He recently did a series on Exodus with Jordan Peterson. So he's in that kind of league of, of brain. And, you know, we've got our Genesis series as well. People are loving. We had Doug Stokes on, excellent episode. Simon Evans. So Eric Kaufman, who's just uh, in the news because he's moved to University of Buckingham to set up a kind of anti-woke course. So loads of great guests. Anything you would like to add, Toby? No, Um I guess if you enjoy listening to this uh, content, if you enjoy The Daily Skeptic, please donate to The Daily Skeptic at um, dailyskeptic.org. If you just donate at £5 a month, then that gives you below-the-line commenting rights and also helps us pay our staff, produce 
the great content we produce every day. All right. Brilliant. Fairly long outro. Again, I always think the outro should be shorter, but thanks to everyone that listens. Amazing feedback from the Together event. So we massively appreciate it. And we'll be back, of course, next week. But until then, stay skeptical. Stay skeptical. Stay skeptical.